Hello and welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, the podcast on the ideas, events and policies that will shape the world from the European Council on Foreign Relations. My name is Mark Leonard and I'm director of ECFR and today we're going to talk about a month of crises. I've got three very special guests uh, who are going to help us make sense of the multiple crises that Europe is facing and how they might be interrelated. First up is Ivan Krastev, who is the chairman of the Centre for Liberal Strategies in Sofia and a permanent fellow at the Institute for Human Sciences in Vienna, from where he is joining us by Skype. And he's also a board member of ECFR. Um, second uh, speaker is uh, Robert Cooper, who is Sir Robert Cooper, former Director General for Politico-Military Affairs at the European Council and an all-round foreign policy savant who spent a lifetime working in the British government before that. And finally, uh, Kadri Leek returns to this podcast. She is Senior Policy Fellow at ECFR from our Wider Europe programme. The background to this podcast is that in June, we will be coming up to crunch time for a number of different crises which the European Union has been living through and which divide its member states and around which there has been a fragile consensus. The refugee crisis, which the EU member states have tried to solve by way of a deal with Turkey, is going to be very much in the spotlight, both because the numbers uh, travelling are, um, are down at the moment, but also because one of the key linchpins of that deal was a, an agreement with Turkey to give them visa liberalisation, and the European Council will have to decide on whether to proceed with that uh, measure. Secondly, there is a referendum happening in a country that I know well on British membership of the, the European Union on the 23rd of June. And there's also a decision about the sanctions which the European Union has introduced on Russia. There'll be a decision on whether to roll them over and whether Russia has uh, complied with the Minsk agreement on, uh, on, on, on Ukraine. And uh, lurking in the background as well, though they're not necessarily any specific decision points in, in June, is the, the euro crisis, which... Uh, is a permanent feature of of European decision-making, but also affects a number of the different countries uh, that are involved, not least Greece, which is at the front line uh, on, in fact, almost all of those crises. Uh, So, Ivan, do you want to talk a bit about how you see these things being related and to what extent the politics around them uh, has become intertwined? I do believe that the most important is to realize that nobody expects this crisis to be simply solved and resolved this June on the next June. But the biggest problem is how to balance, how to play, how to jungle with this crisis, keeping in mind that this four crisis has a different meaning in different countries of the European Union. Uh, for some car- countries, some crises are much more important than others. And also these four crises divide Europe in a very different way. If you basically see the Eurozone crisis, they have, it's very much the crisis of the Eurozone. It does not go outside of the Eurozone. So from this point of view, it is a non-pan-European crisis, nevertheless, that it is critically important for the EU. But here, the major distinctions is between the creditors' countries and the debt countries. It's much more South versus North. 
Uh, when you go with the refugee crisis here, the paradox is that there are many countries in the European Union that there are no refugees at all, but nevertheless it has turned to the first really pan-European crisis because the refugee crisis is touching on the domestic politics of all of the countries. And one of the things that most probably is going to happen at the end of May and which is going in my view to influence very much uh, some of the decisions to be taken in June is going to be the fact that in Austria, most probably for the first time, a leader coming from the far right is going to be elected the president of the country. And many are going to attribute this to the effect of the refugee crisis on the Austrian politics. Uh, and then when you go to the Russia-Ukrainian crisis, it's not simply that it is dividing it between East and West, it's much more dividing the East itself and the West itself. Uh, because some of these European countries basically are looking for a much tougher position uh, to Russia, but you have Poles and the Baltic states for which this is an existential issue. And I do believe this is quite important because when it comes to the United Kingdom, many people believe that it's about the United Kingdom, but at the end of the day, the psychological impact of how the Brits are going to uh, vote is going very much to affect how all people around the European Union are going to see the future of the Union. So, in my view, the basic story is how the European Union can handle all this. And here is my kind of uh, uh, projections. Till recently, it was quite clear that the majority, uh, the prevailing opinion was that European Union is ready to prolong the, crisis, uh, the sanctions regimes towards Russia, at least for six more months. Nevertheless, the support for this prolonging of the sanctions is very much weakening. Uh, the fact that we are going to have a NATO summit in Warsaw, very near uh, to, this, uh, uh, to the decision on Russia, basically is going in this direction. But uh, one of the interesting element and effect of the rise of the far-right parties uh, in different countries in Europe is exactly the change of the relations with Russia. Uh, the Freedom Party in Austria, which candidate now is leading by a big margin in the elections, is a party which already succeeded to send somebody to visit Crimea. So to what extent the domestic political changes in the countries are going to affect this decision, in my view, makes it much more uncertain than it was, for example, a month ago that uh, this uh, type of decisions are going to stand. And when it comes to Turkey, it's very kind of a similar logic because many Europeans understand that the deal with Turkey was the one that helped uh, very much to decline the, the refugee pressure coming on the European Union. But on the other side, if the European member states, for domestic political reasons, decided not to approve the deal with Turkey, and knowing basically what is now the political body language of uh, Turkish government, particularly of President Erdogan, we can expect that he's going to show us that he can be part of the solution, but also he can be a problem. And then the pressure on countries like Greece and Bulgaria is going to be incredible, which is going to create a major problem on the, uh, on the European periphery. So my major feeling is that paradoxically it's going to be the Brexit which is giving the tone. Not because basically United Kingdom simply is big and important European Union member country, but because if Europe, if Europeans has the feeling that Brits are betting on staying in the European Union, their general perception of where Europe goes uh, is going to change in a much more positive way. If basically the idea is that United Kingdom is living, that United Kingdom is defending the Union, nevertheless how this is going to develop in the real terms after that legally and politically, I do believe this is going strongly to increase some of the Eurosceptic tendencies and what is even much more important, some of the readiness of some of the mainstream party to start hedging against the European Union. Wow. 
So it uh, there is a picture of fragility in in uh, what you kind of laid out there, Robert. To what extent do you see these crises as being um, interrelated? Well, you you said that, uh, Mark. You said that the consensus on all of these things is fragile. Well, that's in the nature of consensus. It's always fragile. Um, uh, but it's what exists. And um, uh, to get rid of the consensus, you normally have to find another consensus. And that's not easy. So um, real existing consensus is much more enduring than anyone would normally believe. Uh, I've seen I've seen EU positions, not on major issues, but I've seen EU positions survive years, although there was a majority against them. Yeah. Well, the um, Turkish uh, membership negotiations is a perfect example of something where... Exactly. It's a, hypocrisy takes over from um, I mean, from the hypocrisy, <laughs> at least in the Turkish case, the hypocrisy was mutual. So there was a perfect uh, meeting of hypocritical minds on, on this. Um <laughs> Actually, I think that the the present deal in some ways um, is more serious uh, because it's more realistic. Um, I find it difficult to imagine Turkey joining the European Union. I don't find it difficult to imagine visa-free access. Um, And and because it's more possible and more realistic, uh, I think it's actually a much more important thing for the Turks. And they will be... Well, Mr. Erdogan is... Uh, law unto himself and is not to be predicted, but they would, I think, be quite stupid to 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 throw this over. Um, but the conditions are quite tough, so I wouldn't be surprised if this salute didn't find itself as, if if it's not June, because there are what seventy two um, conditions that have to be met. Um, now some of them are not very big, some of them are already met, but I think some of them are quite difficult. And the people who uh, look after this agreement are not soft-hearted foreign affairs ministries, they're interior ministers uh, for whom questions of immigration are uh, daily... Um, well, they're tough guys. Yeah, so that's one of the... Because I think it, it, we sort of uh, got into a discussion of these different consensuses. Because yeah. you have a sort yeah. of... On the euro, there is a consensus around debt which some people believe is maybe a fake consensus, which isn't necessarily going to last. On on Turkey, you've just described it, and yes. things do look quite precarious. I mean, the euro, I think, is a continual... Uh, the euro is a slightly different sort of crisis because it's, it's, a, it's, it's a cumulative crisis uh, interspersed maybe with a bank failure or something like that. So I think that this is still ultimately the most dangerous and most important of all the crises. But they do play into each other because um, if you listen to the people who want to leave the European Union, uh, the problems of the euro are a major story um, and the problems of um, immigration are a major story. And even though Britain is um, doggedly refusing to take any serious number of uh, refugees, um, the pictures on the TV screen still somehow tell a story of failure. Actually... What the pictures on the TV screen tell you is that there are places that are a whole lot worse off than Europe. So, Kadri, the the third crisis, which we haven't talked about as much as the the one on Russia and where there has been this uh, consensus, which 
usually appears within seconds of mentioning it, the idea that Minsk and the Minsk process and Minsk implementation is absolutely central to uh, to European policy towards Russia and that the sanctions should be kept in place until Minsk has been implemented in full. And yet, most fair-minded observers think it's quite difficult to implement Minsk and uh, even to agree on whether it's been implemented or not. Yes, um, Minsk is um, quite unimplementable. Uh, it's even um, somewhat unreadable or, or very hard to understand, as we have discussed in the same studio earlier. But I also think that the, sanction, the consensus around sanctions might be stronger than, than it seems. Um, I'm inclined to assume that they will be prolonged. Uh, I think the discussion on that will be started at G7 meeting. Um, that is the f- one way of, of handling it. And also when it comes to the positions of dissenters, I'm still not sure how to say, read Italy's position because, um, I mean, on the one hand, it might seem that they really want to get rid of sanctions. On the other hand, when you talk with people who actually work for foreign ministry or they tend to make it quite clear that um, they want a discussion um, but not necessarily lift the sanctions. They want the discussion that would involve Nord Stream True and, and things that other countries do, and, and also workability of sanctions. And the latter is legitimate because um, I don't think the sanctions will produce the result we want simply by themselves. I think we ought to be a lot more active diplomatically um, and not just us, actually. I think Ukraine needs to do a lot more as well, because for as long as Russia thinks that Ukraine might still fail as a country, they are not really inclined to look for a face-saving way out. But that's where Minsk comes into play. I mean, Minsk would actually be something that could be used uh, to offer Russia a face-saving way out of Donbass. But, but Russia needs to seek that way out. And until they are not sure what will happen in Kiev... And they misread the situation in Ukraine as well. But even if they didn't, it doesn't look utterly good always. Um, they are not inclined to, to make use of that way saving exit. Maybe I could, could just say, I, I don't think that sanctions, with the very slight possibility you make, might make this case in Iran, I don't think that sanctions have ever produced policy change on their own. But they've very often been a factor in, in, in change. Um, I, I can give you endless examples of that, um, uh, but and these sanctions are never were never designed to bring Russia to its knees or anything of the sort. However, it is written into the legislation on sanctions uh, that these sanctions will be lifted when Minsk is implemented. So, if Minsk is not implemented, somebody's got to have a very good explanation for why they're lifting sanctions. So, there are some sort of um, some verbal constraints on. But we also might actually want to have um, some more intensive dialogue with Russia to make them believe that actually sanctions may be lifted, because certain people in Moscow would claim that you will never lift them anyway. They will now stay in place. And and there is also sort of pro-counter-sanctions lobby in Russia. So that also reduces the effectiveness of sanctions up to a point. So to communicate that change actually would be possible if, if Moscow wanted is, is not unimportant either. 
I also want to bring here the special position of Germany in all this crisis that we talk about. Uh, because we like to talk about the German leadership, but in a strange way, in all of this crisis, uh, Germany very much now is surrounded by countries and governments that are very much challenging its basic positions. In the South, as the result of the elections, you end up with the elections of the anti-austerity governments that are very much changing German fiscal policies and particularly its view how the Eurozone crisis should be solved. And then basically with the refugee crisis, you have Germany being very much pressed by Central and Eastern Europe. And now the Visegrad 4, I do believe with Austria, is becoming the Visegrad 5, are very much changing its position on refugee migrations, but also deal with Turkey. And when it comes to the Russia policy and the Ukraine, where Germany is playing extremely important role in the Normandy group, to a certain extent, the strengthening of this position was based on the axis between Berlin and Warsaw, when it was coming to to basically constructing this position and also trying to keep other countries interested. Now the relations between Warsaw and Berlin was not are not the ones that they used to be with the previous government. So I do believe one of the interesting impacts uh, of the crisis is also how this is going basically to push Germany to decide what are the priority crises and how to balance between these different crises. Because one of the things that is happening, and I do believe this is critically important, is that it's a not simply a foreign policy crisis. Most of this crisis starts radically to impact the domestic politics, how people will vote, and basically how the governments perceive that they can stay in power or be voted out of power as a result of it. Uh, so the fact that this type of a four crisis have been very much moved to the electoral politics, I do believe makes it more difficult for them to be resolved than generally if simply they're going to be on the level of uh, government negotiations. And here comes one more, in my view, difficult moment, and this is the appearance of the referenda, as a kind of a new instrument uh, to basically use this crisis. We saw it, uh, how a very small minority of the Dutch voters basically pressed the Dutch government, at least verbally, uh, to reconsider its position on the EU-Ukraine deal. We can basically expect some this type of a referendum initiatives in different countries where the people has an opportunity to do this. And I do believe this is going to be a major constraint uh, on the capacity of the European Union to basically keep the consensuses that have been already achieved. I remember going to Holland shortly after their no vote in 2005 and met a very senior Dutch official who talked about the, the democratic destruction of the European Union. Um, and I think there is a, a real sense everywhere that the, the European project is becoming unraveled as a, a result of both this kind of asymmetric impact that all the different crises are having and also the the fact that governments are not allowed to make the sort of package deals that they used to in order to, to keep the show on the road. Um, how do we get out of this situation? Robert, you've been involved in thousands of intergovernmental discussions over the years. Is it possible to, to try and trade off between these different crises? I mean, Germany, as Ivan said, played that role earlier on. It was able to, to bring uh, East and South Europe together on the, on the Russian crisis. It somehow managed to, to broker deals that everybody hated but was still willing to live with on the on the euro crisis it's been kind of pushing 
for this deal in, on Turkey. But now that Angela Merkel in particular is, is kind of uh, under a huge amount of pressure domestically and Germany's lost some of its both hard and its soft power as a result of the, the refugee crisis. Um, how, do you think they're, they're able or interested in, in doing something which looks like a, a grand bargain on these different things where you... I mean, maybe I'm maybe I'm un, unduly complacent, but I, and crisis is a way of life. Uh, if you if you started at World War Two and listed the major crises that there'd been, you find there's an average of two or three a year, and we survive them. Um, uh, now the the refugee crisis, I think, is different, and the the, the economic crisis is a long run crisis, and there's a structural problem, and. I'm not sure that I see that being solved. So this crisis, this this crisis may recur, but uh, but Germany has already moved quite a lot beyond what it thought it was going to move. Uh, Mr. Draghi has done things that nobody ever thought he would do. Uh, not clear that either of those things are enough yet, and clear also that the situation in Greece is reaching a new crisis. But a new crisis. This is the is this the fifth or sixth major Greek crisis. Uh, they've maybe got used to them now. Um, uh, the 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 refugee crisis is something is something different. Um, but uh, there, all I can say is that there's been a dramatic fall in the numbers. I mean, the numbers are down. The numbers which were thousands are now less than a hundred or something like that. Yeah. Um, uh, now that doesn't mean to say it's solved. And indeed, there may even at some point be problems in Turkey. As a result of this, but the Turkey deal, Ivan, is, is does feel very vulnerable because on the one hand, uh, Angela Merkel needs that to happen because it is the key to what's is the one big step forward on the refugee crisis. But at the same time, in France, where I was last week, people are talking about how we're trading a million refugees for seventy-two million Turks or eighty million Turks. Um, and François Hollande is terrified of uh, the political pressure he's getting from the National Front, from Sarkozy on the right, and they don't seem to be very enthusiastic about uh, honouring the deal, even in the unlikely event that Turkey manages to meet all 72 sets of criteria. But visa, I mean, visa-free access is not the same as um, free movement of labour. Um, it's not the same as you still have to get a work permit if you're a Turk. Um, and the visa-free access will apply only for people staying for three months. Um, and besides, I don't think it's going to happen tomorrow either because um, the the conditions are uh, going to be rather rigorously applied and I think there's still some way to, to go on that. Uh, nevertheless, I think it's a very important deal for Turkey and in the end, it's probably... I think, a good deal for both Turkey and the European Union. I do believe that the time dimension is very critical. And uh, here the Chancellor Merkel is very much right. In order basically to keep our chance to resolve this crisis, we should basically try to separate in time one climax from the other. But I do believe the European Union is facing a problem which is in a much more general nature. And this is that we do not have now a language on which to speak about this crisis. Because the best and the worst is the same interdependence. European Union is based on the assumptions 
that this is the beneficial nature of interdependence that is going to make us secure. And this is best seen in the idea of the open borders. On the other side, many of the problems that we are seeing today are the result of the interdependence. And the fact that the best and the worst are the same makes it very difficult to argue with the public. And this is, I do believe, this loss of a language is one of the reasons why basically the European politicians are betting on, on ambiguity, which I do believe is a very reasonable bet. So the problem is we're not saying we are strongly for deal with Turkey or strongly against, but we're going to create this zone of ambiguity in which we can try to find some kind of a temporary solutions that are going to work for everybody. And this is true for Minsk. Uh, of course, nobody believes that Minsk is going to be basically implemented in the way it was done. But means allows us all the time to redefine it, what it means, and basically what is success, what is failure. So I do believe that this kind of a game of ambiguity is the best chance also for the European Union uh, to resolve uh, the problems that we are facing. I, I'm also not sure that I understand the, understand the crisis that this is going to provoke, that we're exchanging... Uh, a million refugees for 80 million Turks. I doubt if the 80 million Turks are all going to come simultaneously. And if they do come, they'll pay their way and uh, they may even go to restaurants in Paris. I'm not the one who's claiming it'll be a crisis. I'm just saying that the political pressure in different countries is uh, to see it as, uh, as a kind of mobilizing cause for far-right parties uh, ukip yeah. the uk independence party has been putting leaflets uh, around the country in the last week uh asking people uh, as a consultation exercise but asking people what they think about turkish membership of the of the european union and when you have political leaders that feel like they're under a lot of pressure it does sometimes lead to um to uh decisions being blocked and one of the questions is whether it is going to be possible to to postpone the decision given that Erdogan uh, is also under political pressure the visa free access is part of his plan to build a constitutional majority within Turkey they've been rebuffed a number of different times the EU doesn't have massive credibility so if we say that if he says that we've fulfilled all the criteria from our perspective and we expect this uh, to happen now, and if you don't give it to us, we're going to walk away from the deal, which he's publicly said. It, he he would have to climb down if uh, if he allows it to be postponed for a period of time. Uh, well, it'll be very unpopular if he walks away from it too. Uh, the lot of people in Turkey who really want this to happen, and the question of have the condition been fulfilled is not one on which he's going to make the judgment. So good luck to him if that's his attitude. But I do believe one of the reasons why the Brexit is so important in this constellation of crisis is that Brexit is the only event in all this crisis talk that we have now where not simply the government speak, but the voters speak. And because we have such a strong anti-establishment consensus all over Europe, uh, you basically all over have people who do not trust their elected political elites. I do believe from this point of view, strangely enough, is going to be vote of, of the British citizens who are very much about an issue which is not concerning all of any of this crisis, but very much how Britain see itself, which is going to have a critical impact on the way also how the other crises are going to be resolved. Uh, this is this is my feeling because what has changed, and I agree very much with Robert, that 
crisis is the way the European Union has been functioning. The whole story of the European Union is resolving one crisis and coming up another. But probably we reached a moment in which the voters uh, and basically the publics are much more a factor in the way the European governments are going to behave with respect to this crisis than any single moment before. Well, um, all I can say, and Mark would, I don't know what Mark thinks, but sitting here in the UK, all I can say is um, uh, this is a roll of the dice. Nobody knows what's going to happen in this referendum. Uh, We're asking a large number of people, uh, including um, Australians and Nigerians, uh, who just happen to be living here at the moment, um, uh, what they um, what they think about an institution that almost none of them understand. Even the people campaigning, um, whatever they, almost every statement, especially on the Brexit side, almost every sentence is wrong. So, Kadri, you're you're also sitting in London as a this as a. Uh, maybe not completely dispassionate observer, but what does it look like to you? <clears throat> I'm also struck by the nature of a debate and and frankly also by the um, sort of light-hearted irresponsibility of a political elite who brought that along. I mean, to me, the whole referendum thing looks like using nuclear weapon to deal with a wasp nest. It might help against wasps, but um, so I am I am slightly puzzled, and um, and yes, but but I think there is something much more general happening um, in the whole Western world, including the United States, and that is something that Yvonne mentioned: the anti-elite mood. And I think that has roots somewhere deeper. Something somewhere has gone wrong. And the way I tend to see many, the outcome of many of these crises, I think if, if Western liberalism manages to come out of this crisis, somehow reinvigorate, reinvent itself, then many other crises take care of themselves, including Russia one, actually. I had a very interesting conversation with one um, Russian political analyst anthropologist who said that to him it's clear that Russia cannot come out of its own political economic crisis and mm-hmm. basically the dead end uh, unless Europe so- resolves its crisis because Europe is such a powerful model and that strikes me as as, as quite truthful so um, I think some sort of more general shift in undercurrents is, is needed and then actually Many of these things we are trying to somehow resolve here will just sort themselves out. I, I agree very much with uh, what Kadri said at the beginning, that I, and Ivan has been saying it implicitly as well, that I think there is, I don't, I don't like the word crisis, but I think that there is at least a malaise in democratic systems. And I, we in the last, in if you look at the... 19th century up to about the end of World War II, you found there was actually constant change in democratic structures. Um, In Britain, at any rate, since World War II, there's been absolutely no change at all. But society has changed dramatically in this period. So I think that here in this country, and I think it's probably true in other countries as well, I think actually there's a need. We ought to regard democracy as being something that needs regularly to be renewed. 
Uh, it certainly needs it here. I very much agree. And there is one more factor, because most of this crisis uh, basically are concerned not only us, the external actors. This is true for Turkey. This is true for Russia. And to a certain extent, they're going to act betting on the fact is European Union capable of solving this crisis. Because as Mr. Rumsfeld used to say, weakness is an invitation for aggression. So from this point of view, the more European Union looks kind of a trapped in its crisis without the horizon of this major institutional and I do believe societal change that is in demand, then this is going to make others uh, less likely basically to follow our lead in resolving this crisis. Now, this is a really good theme for the um, uh, Institute of Human Sciences, Ivan. <laughs> I think this is your business. Yeah, unfortunately, it's also ECFR's business uh, every day. I'm not sure that we've come to any major conclusions about uh, how these things are related to each other, how we're going to find a way out of them. But um, I think there is a, a general consensus that at the root of all of these European issues is a profound national uh, malaise and that in in their own individual ways every single country seems to be going through a reshuffling of its political system a doubting of the whole idea of political representation and our interdependence is amplifying that anxiety and uh feeding uh, into uh, its amplification by blocking and, and vetoing and, and sort of generally throwing lots of spanners in the works of the, the European political system. But we'll see at the end of June whether or not any of these individual crises actually erupt and uh, become defining of the era or whether they are the normal quotidian crises that Robert Cooper described earlier. Uh, we've got one more thing to do in this podcast. We're going to have a return of the much-loved but much-neglected institution of the, the bookshelf, where um can ask everybody what's on their bookshelves at the moment. Who, do you want, who wants to go first? Kadri, what are you reading? Yes. Well, I Russia Watchers, I think, will know the book. Uh, it's uh, by Russian journalist Mikhail Zagar, uh, and the title somewhat clumsily translates into English as All the Kremlin's Men. So that's basically sort of political history of Russia in this century. And why I found it interesting, Mikhail tries to show how um, things that Russia has done have often happened as reactions to some sort of situations daily needs and so forth. So it sort of dispels the myth that Putin from day one in the office wanted to take Crimea and reinvent the Soviet Union. Uh, but Putin has also evolved in his role and, and reacted to constraints, opportunities uh, and so forth. I think that is quite sobering. What about you, Robert? Well, some time back, Ivan recommended to me a book called Anatomy of a Moment by Javier Secas, uh, which I thought was a fantastic book. It was about the attempted coup in Madrid in 1982. Um, uh, as a result of that, I read another book by the same author called The Soldiers of Salamis, uh, which, if anything, it's hard to say whether the books are better or worse, but this is 
uh, is a really remarkable book. It's the only book I know where the author manages to have the first have the same sentence both at the beginning and the end of the book. Wow. Um, it's like uh, a and the and it's a book that you have to read to the end to understand it completely. But I also thought this Soldiers of Salamis by Javier Zekas, I think it's a wonderful book. So what's it actually about? Well, it's about an incident in the uh, in the Spanish Civil War, um, in which somebody fails to kill someone, which was very unusual in the Spanish Civil War, which was very very bloody, um, uh, and it's about somebody who's trying to understand the meaning of that incident. What about you, Ivan? What's on your bookshelf? Listen, uh, the truth is that in a moment like this, for example, when we talk about crisis in Europe and so on, I very rarely read books which are basically related to this crisis because uh, at the moment of crisis, I always read memoirs or history books because I find them uh, much more interesting and also useful. But there is one book on Europe which was uh, published recently, which I find a very intelligent and thoughtful way uh, to think about the European Union and this crisis. And this is Luke van Middelaar's book, The Passage to Europe. Because I do believe this is a quite good story also to try to allow us to understand that also the way we talk about Europe is very much the way uh, basically this crisis are going to be resolved or not. But normally in this type of a moment, I prefer memoirs because what I have realized is that all this problem of crisis, disintegration and so on, it's not only, a, not only a process which is determined by the structural type of reasons, it's very much a moment. And the only people that can capture the moment are people that have been lived through something like this. So I've been reading a book which is like from a different planet for, uh, from all of these kind of historical crises we've been living with. It's a, a piece of technological utopianism from, from the United States called uh, The Industries of the Future by Alec Ross, who used to be a, uh, an advisor to Hillary Clinton. But what's interesting about it is if you strip away the technological utopianism, uh, you get a picture of a world that's going to be vastly more interdependent than the one that we are already suffering through at the moment. And that creates uh, thousands of different scenarios of... of uh, ways that politics and interdependence can be can become more dangerous, more fractious um, through whether it's through the effect of, of robots on our labour markets and the uh, inequality it creates and the do- jobs it destroys, the uh, prevalence of, of cyber warfare and and the Internet of Things and the different ways that people can disrupt each other's existence the revolution in biotech and all sorts of other areas he what um is promised through this book is is a whole series of, of technological transformations which can uh wreak total havoc uh on our very ideas of, of, of what the economy is about, what work is going to be about, what life uh, is going to be about, how we live together. And I think that the political manifestations of all of these things uh, will be immense. And uh, for a body like the European Union, which exists 
on the basis that interdependence is a good thing and prevents conflict between countries, we could see a, a, a lot of challenges coming out of that, which make even the, the difficult things we've been discussing in the last few minutes seem uh, relatively manageable. Well, that brings uh, an end to this really interesting and slightly uh, awe-inspiring discussion of, of Europe's interlinked crises. We've put links to all the books that we mentioned on our website at www.ecfr.eu slash podcasts. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please uh, tweet about it, put references to it on your Facebook page. Rate it on iTunes, on SoundCloud, send it to your friends, shout about it from the rooftops. And if you have any comments or constructive criticism or even destructive criticism to share with us, please email me at mark.leonard at ecfr.eu. But for now, from Ivan Krastev, Robert Cooper, Kadri Leek and myself, Mark Leonard, it's goodbye. The researcher of ECFR's podcast is Ulrika Franke and our editor is Katarina Botel Antinaro. <laughs>